This is a Rooster Teeth production. Would you be willing to die in the name of beauty? The Victorians were, and we'll find out why in this episode of 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we investigate topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature in about 30 minutes, give or take. From the 1830s to about 1870, there was a very specific aesthetic that dominated Victorian-era beauty trends. It was influenced by the monarchy, Queen Victoria herself, as well as emerging social standards that came with the industrial and urban booms. Cities, especially London, were bustling and overflowing with people. This contributed to contagious disease outbreaks, of course, and excessive pollution. Been watching The Last of Us? I have. I absolutely have, and I love it. The Victorians, perhaps partly in reaction to their quality of life, came to regard cleanliness as a form of godliness. To be clean was to be moral, and to be moral was to be respectable. Those of the aristocratic classes, women especially, were expected to conduct themselves both in their actions and appearance in a certain way. And so Victorian England developed a very identifiable and specific aesthetic, especially for women. Especially keyword for women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ladies of certain status developed processes and daily rituals and routines to uphold it. But like a lot of today's Instagram beauty standards, a lot of it was quite performative. And women felt an immense societal pressure to look a certain way, which really never seems to change now that we mention it. Yeah. (laughs) A woman's physical form, femininity, and outward beauty was so intrinsically tied to her class and social ranking. And this drove women to sometimes deadly lengths to fit a particular standard of beauty. And you can blame society and the patriarchy completely because women during this time were still very much their father or their husband's property. Yes, sometimes marrying upward was the only way forward for women who couldn't hold land, personal wealth, and lacked rights. And looking the right way was a big part of getting inside high society circles and landing the right gentleman. Mm -hmm. Now it's just like, you know, ASL, uh, (laughs) you up, whatever you see. I don't know what people, single people text each other. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we've covered some of this on the show before when applicable. But in this episode, we are finally taking a full, detailed, down to the business look at how morbid, harmful and hazardous Victorian era beauty standards could be and were. Many of the makeup, clothing and beauty methods applied were killer. Yeah, and not like like looks amazing killer. We mean like killer as in like it'll it'll, you know, killer you dead. <laughs> like literally kill you. Women were literally poisoning themselves in the name of beauty. And so much of this, for some wild reason, can be explained away by looking at the prominent disease of the time, tuberculosis. God, tuberculosis. It's so, like we've talked about on the podcast before, so romanticized in a way. But Mm -hmm. in case you need a refresher, tuberculosis is a highly contagious respiratory and pulmonary illness characterized by coughing, emaciation, fever, chest pains, lethargy, and hacking up phlegm and blood. Yeah, and if untreated... It'll kill you. Tuberculosis can be a slow and steady decline, or you might die in a matter of weeks. The first use of the name tuberculosis wasn't in print until 1839. During the Victorian era, it was known by other names, including thysis, consumption, scrofula, 
hectic fever, and graveyard cough. I love graveyard cough. I was going to say the same. I love it. I just picture a row of dancing skeletons being like... Yeah, I wish we I wish we still used that to this day. I know. I just I can't report the podcast. I got hit by the graveyard cop. <laughs> uh, yeah, so people were flocking to these growing cities, and with them they brought airborne disease. And at its height in the 19th century, tuberculosis was responsible for about 25% of all annual deaths across Europe. And yet somehow, in the most warped and twisted of ways, TB came to thoroughly influence the perception of beauty and fashion trends, so much so that to get TB was very heavily romanticized. Yes, and it coined the term consumptive chic, which also happens to be the name of a book by historian and Furman professor Carolyn Day. And her book, Day talks about how the symptoms of TB came to be seen as the very feminine ideal, so much so that women who didn't have it started to emulate it in their makeup and dress. Yeah, TB was in vogue. It was the hotness. Like Paris Hilton would be like, that's hot. And it'd be because you had a fever. But also because that was her catchphrase. Um, I'm really into the 2000s right now. Can you tell? Women tried to make themselves look like they had the symptoms of TB when they didn't. That's what the whole fashion and beauty standard was based around. Yeah. So what does that look like exactly? Um, Painting on flushed rosy cheeks and red lips mirrored the effects of a constant low-grade fever, (laughs) as as did bright, (laughs) sparkling, and watery eyes. Yeah, these like big doe eyes, but it's because your pupils were dilated. (laughs) Um, Thin, teeny, 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 tiny waists came into fashion the size of your head, aided by voluminous skirts and corsets that then like emphasized how tiny a woman's midsection was. And they also did this thing where they like slumped her posture, which (sighs) kind of resembled, you know, someone being sickly. Yep. And now if someone actually had tuberculosis, they were thin and wayfish because of the disease, because they had no appetite and were starving to death. A woman might also want to be thin enough so that she could wear a low corset to show off her pronounced clavicles. Yeah, it like wasn't even boobs. It was I know, it was like, like girl, clavicle. check the clavicles on her. Yeah. And so women used makeup and dressing techniques like corsets to create this consumptive effect. And we'll talk about more about this in detail, but they also caught tuberculosis and were like kind of okay with it, which is wild. Yeah, see, that it makes me so mad just because like society has done this to women and still does this to women to this day. It's just angering to me. Yeah. Um, And they were like, you know, girl, you're really beautiful, but you know how you could be even more beautiful if you were actually dying. And they just kind of like went with that. And yeah, it was sad that people died, but it was also... This, this thing where it was like this weird preservation of beauty. That's so, oh, it's gross. I hate it. Yeah, and basically all of the Bronte sisters died of TB. Charlotte wrote about it in uh, 1849. Yeah, she wrote, consumption, I am aware, is a flattering malady. Yeah, so even Charlotte Bronte, by saying it's a flattering malady, is acknowledging the beautification of tuberculosis. Charlotte and her sisters, Emily and Anne, all died by various complications of TB, and they were all under the age of 40. Lord. <laughs> um, yeah, Princess Amelia, daughter of George III, died of TB only at 27. 27 Club? And her brother, George. The- <laughs> yeah, I bet that's so, Sorry. When I think of the 27 Club, I think of Princess Amelia, sorry, daughter was- of George III. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it's like Jimi um, Hendrix, Kurt yeah. Cobain, Princess Amelia. 
Um, but yes, and her brother, George IV, had a death mask made uh, of her to preserve her beauty. Gosh, what a sick fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sicko, George. <laughs> but the encouragement of this deathbed beauty does not stop there. No, no, no. They're, they're like operas and plays glamorizing beautiful and tragic songbirds who were taken too early by the disease. There are so many from the 19th century. I could see you being in an opera, Jack. With TB? No, but you're singing about you're singing about how you've got TB. But your voice, like the thing about these women is, you know, they're hacking their brains up, but the voice never weakens. But how cool would it be if I'm just like up on stage, but I have TB and I'm singing opera and I'm coughing up blood? Like what? You know, aesthetically. It'd be like Universal Studios Waterworld. They have to put a splash guard in the front of the front three rows. Like they they you know how at yeah. Waterworld, it's like yep. the first three rows are green because you're yep. going to get hit. But what if in this case, like the blood getting, you know, everybody was getting hit. They walked out and they were more like an art piece. Yes. That's how it would happen. You know, you got to go. you gotta change your perspective, will. at least. I'm ready to produce this okay. <laughs> performance. Let's do um, it. Mimi in Puccini's La Boheme, uh, Violetta in Verdi's La Triovata, Antonia in The Tale of Hoffman, all stories of women suffering from TB. And the heroines of novels like uh, Le Demo Camelias or Camille, uh, Alexandre Dumas's Marguerite, Katerina in Dostoevsky's uh, Crime and Punishment, Fantine in Les Mis, all of these are characters of the time that were suffering from TB and kind of romanticized in these literary works. Mm-hmm. And at least toward the beginning of the movement, TB was associated more so with the upper class, almost as if being of high standing predisposed you to the disease. So it was kind of like this weird, twisted status symbol. Yeah. And men got it too. Like John Keats and Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island, uh, both died of it. And for a time, it was associated with creative genius. So like most things, though, there was this reactionary reversal to that, and then it became deemed a woman's disease. So much so that um, I've seen comparisons in writing to the AIDS epidemic where like men even went to great lengths to hide the fact they had it because they would be regarded as effeminate. Yeah, yeah it definitely played into the preferred and subjugative gender dynamic of the time, too. Women were expected to be these helpless, coddled, breathless creatures, and having a disease that caused fatigue and fainting certainly didn't help the stereotype. No, it absolutely infantilized women even more so and confined them to the home, and that put them even more so under the thumb of their husband, Because like, you know, on top of the fact that they're dying, which I can't emphasize enough, they just can't go out now, right? They're too sick. Yeah, women were also expected to to do no physical labor and therefore have little to no muscle. So these weak, frail little flowers who can't lift a quarter off the ground. Man, this episode's getting me all riled up. I know, I'm getting, it's very, (laughs) I get angry. Yeah, so suffice to say, it was not great for women during this time. And women, as we mentioned, went to extreme lengths still to try and embody this deathbed beauty. Yeah, and- And now not all women had TB. It wasn't just like every single woman had tuberculosis. I hope we're not making it sound that way. (laughs) No, no. It was more so that like the disease created these effects that like gave off a beautiful air. So people wanted to emulate it. And this is where wearing makeup to look like you had TB came into play. 
Which is so ironic, given that the Victorians were outwardly very anti-makeup and considered natural beauty to be a gift from God. Uh, oh, yeah. Much like the TB <laughs> that was yes. also gifted to yes, them. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, it is weird because like they were so, so against makeup, but still it was so prevalent during this time, too. It was just, you know, in a way that you would not recognize it. Wearing makeup was seen as sinful and derogatory. People thought that only prostitutes and actors wore it, but women still wanted to keep up with this unnatural beauty standard. So they wore makeup in secret. Yeah. Like the original, no makeup, makeup, the, the mm. natural <laughs> makeup. <laughs> what? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I just want to look naturally like I have TB. Yeah. And uh, there were two styles, the natural style and the painted. So natural self-explanatory, you look just more natural and painted was like a bit more obvious and it was considered very gauche that you could, you know, see a woman's eyeshadow or red, mm. red lip. Mm -hmm. And so women concocted beauty products from homemade formulas or would repackage products in different cases, even resorting to hiding their makeup inside secret compartments. Yeah. Like in their wardrobe or they had like little purses that had secret compartments. Um, but as the 19th century progressed, makeup became more common and women were using it more brazenly. And they did, especially to try to, to achieve that TB look. One of the major aspects of the look was pale, pale, white skin. Paler the better, since it showed that you were a lady of leisure. You didn't have to toil in the fields and you could spend your time relaxing indoors. And this is where relaxing is too easily interchanged with being violently ill from dying, but yes, <laughs> relaxing. Yeah. And, and I love seeing how beauty trends evolve because now if you have a tan, it means that you have extra time. You can go on vacation mm -hmm. to sunny locales. But back then, no, the opposite. Victorian women resorted to all kinds of methods to modify their skin tone. Some drank vinegar with the mistaken belief it could prevent you from getting a tan. This one I love. This is so fascinating to me. But some would paint delicate blue veins on their skin to make it look like all like translucent. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, some would wash their face with ammonia or do these homebrew chemical peels with sulfuric acid, which sulfuric acid is highly corrosive and it can damage your eyes, your teeth, your skin, your lungs if you ingest it. See, and just getting angry and angrier. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, many plied their faces with toxic and corrosive lead-based faced uh, white paint. This ultimately caused skin irritations, lesions, and rashes, which meant that the that the wearer would have to apply even more makeup to cover all of that up. Just like cyclical irony. And it also caused lead poisoning and uh, paralysis. Oh, yeah, that too. That's just, just, just to like add on top. Perhaps even more dangerous of all was Victorian women's obsession with arsenic. They ate it. They drank it. They even bathed in it in like hot springs or arsenic springs and baths, all for its lightening properties. Arsenic is a chemical compound that used long-term, even in small doses, can cause serious damage to the nervous system and kidneys, epilepsy, and renal failure. It can increase a person's risk for heart disease and cancer, cause your thyroid glands to swell up. All yeah, it. it'll straight up kill you. And if you microdose it like these women were, it can also become addictive. Women bought and ate Dr. Rose's arsenic complexion wafers, little chalk wafers that contain small amounts of arsenic and promised to not only change your complexion from the inside out, but clear it, smooth it, and soften sharp features. And I can't even eat gluten and these baddies were damning <sighs> arsenic. 
<laughs> I have to put respect. And little on, wafers, you yeah. know, like little. Uh, like communion wafers is how yeah. I imagine it to almost be. Yeah. In practice, large amounts and long-term use of arsenic, like the lead-based face paints, exacerbated the very skin problems those treatments claimed to resolve. And when it came to other makeup, like what women would apply to their eyes and lips and cheeks, some of this was natural, even used elements you might find in your own home garden. However, there were all kinds of other dangerous substances in use, though. Eyeshadows or eye paint contain lead and antimony sulfide. There was a substance called cinnabar that was used to make red shades, which contains mercuric sulfide, which is a toxic metal that you can find on official toxic substances lists. And women were putting this on their eyes and their lips. Oh my God. Women used a substance called pitch to darken and shape their eyebrows, which is also what we use now to make <laughs> oh, road tar. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> road tar, y'all. Oh. To get those big, glassy, beautiful tuberculosis eyes, women would drop belladonna drops in their eyes. Yes, and it's important to note that belladonna has another well-known nickname, Deadly Nightshade. Oh, shit, girl. <laughs> How are you not reading these bottles and going, this can't end well? No. Would, that does not sound great. No, and it wasn't. Aside from unnecessarily dilating your pupils, belladonna drops can ultimately cause blindness. Yeah, Women also drink killer drops. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, come on, guys. Yeah. Read the bottles. Man. But they just, uh, they didn't care. Like, it's crazy how yeah. it got it got so bad to the point where they just do, did not care because the beauty standards so were so outrageous. Yeah. 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 It's, it's insane. And, um, like, you know, if you're, if you're popping these belladonna drops and you can't see, you're probably more likely to, oh, I don't know, maybe catch your skirt on fire and die, which happened a lot. Like... Like a lot. It depends on who you ask, but several journalists and researchers account for anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands of deaths by dress fires in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. And caged crinoline is all to thank for this. Crinoline is that rounded and hooped petticoat that makes a dress round out like a giant bell, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those those big old gowns you see in the period movies. Yeah, if you're watching like Little Women and they go to the coming out parties and stuff, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to get into how crinoline caused the deaths of thousands right after a word from our sponsors. Now that's 23, you might be feeling the need for a little wardrobe refresh. Well, now you're in luck because Rothy's has chic, sustainable shoes that bring out your style A-game. Their styles are knit to shape with their sustainable signature thread made from recycled materials. I like that, which makes them soft and flexible. Plus, they look great right out of the box with no break-in period. I know mine did. And whether your style is classic neutrals or trendy yet timeless pops of color, Rothy's has you covered. Rothy's has so many options for wardrobe staples. They've got flats. They've got loafers. They even have sneakers. And they've got it all in dozens of colors and prints. We're talking effortless, versatile styles you can wear season after season because they're 100% machine washable. Mm -hmm. My shoes look almost like these slip-on Chelsea boots. And they're great because... They're this light green color and it's been really rainy here in LA, but I've been able to wash them and clean them and they look brand new. I was going to say the same thing. I got white ones and I've washed them and they're a hundred percent look the, without like the material isn't deteriorating in any way. Oh yeah. It's not pilling or anything yes, like that. Exactly. Yeah. 
For stylish and comfortable shoes, shop Rothy's. Get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash 30mm. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash 30mm. It's always great to kick off your new year with new gear, especially when that's gear that's made to last. Shady Rays has you covered. They make durable, world-class sunglasses as good as any expensive pair. And to make things even better, they are an independent sunglass company. And Shady Rays has gear for the sun as well as the slopes with their premium polarized shades and customizable snow goggles. So cool. And they look so good too. And they have a protection plan that can only be described as bananas. If you lose or break a pair, they will replace them. No questions asked. If you lose them, no questions asked. Yeah, no, that really is bananas. Yeah. <laughs> True, truly Shady Rays has your back long after you buy. Plus, if you don't love them, you can exchange them, return them free within 30 days. I find it hilarious that both me and you, Elise, got the uh, Cypress sandstone glasses, but oh I love gosh. them. <laughs> they're so beautiful and classy looking and they're this kind of like tan color and they just look so unique. They're definitely great for summer. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, I love them too. And exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code 30MM, that's 30MM, for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Shady Rays has been rated five stars by over 200,000 people. Try them for yourself. Now back to the show. So throughout history, crinoline cages have been made from wood, metal, or horsehair, hence the name, since crinia de cheval is the French translation of horsehair. The steel cages started getting mass produced around the late 1850s, and at the height of popularity, crinoline cages could sometimes hit circumferences of up to 18 feet. I would not walk. <laughs> well, no. There's like, how do you just, you can't sit, you can't move anywhere, no. you can't do anything. It made them not only cumbersome when it came to, I don't know, entering a door, um, (laughs) but like if you were entering and exiting a carriage or just plain existing. It also made them these hazards since the wearer could lose all concept for how far reaching uh, they were. Like, so you really had no concept for like, um, I'm here, but my dress ends over here. (laughs) Yeah. You know how like in a lot of period uh, movies and whatnot that wore these, um, they're like a lot of the women are just kind of like sitting around and kind of like fanning themselves and just oh, yeah. kind of like laying around. <laughs> Granted, I know that they weren't really doing a lot of physical labor and that that necessarily wasn't their job, but also they were just exhausted from doing all of this. Ugh, Literally yes. like carting this giant ass thing around. I would be yes. exhausted. Yeah. It was like carrying a baby with you all the time. Yeah. But yes, if you consider um, all of that, given the fabric and material contents, they were extremely flammable. It's harrowing to think that so many women were standing next to fireplaces unaware that their dress was touching the flames. It was that yeah. big and far away from them. And and that's so often how it happened, that they just did not realize they were so close to the fire. Um, yeah. The ethereal fabrics of the day, like muslin and gauze and bobbinet and cotton, they are, were also flammable. So the second they got hit by uh, any, you know, spark or or anything like that, they would just combust in a second. Yeah. And remember, this is also a pre-electricity world. So there are just candles, gas and fire everywhere. Yeah. And um, it would ignite quickly because remember, the materials are so flammable. And then this big giant bell of crinoline would create almost like this oxygen furnace cyclone beneath it that kind of fueled the fire, which made it 
even harder to suppress it or extinguish it. There are lots of stories you can read online about uh, about women that this has happened to, like ballerina Emma Livery, who caught fire from standing too close to a gaslight, then came hurtling out on stage in a whirling column of fire. Oh, we're <laughs> Picture gonna, that. We're gonna, we're gonna have that in your opera. Yeah, okay. For sure. <laughs> Hey, to look cool at least. <laughs> yeah, right after the front row gets hit by the blood splat, then <laughs> I bloods. I come spinning out as the firewoman. Hey, come on, I'm um, just making art, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oscar Wilde's sisters, Emily and Mary, were at a Halloween party in 1871, and Mary got too close to a candlestick, and unknowingly her dress lit right up, and all the guests, like, by the accounts that we have, ran, like, panicked and screaming from the party, and they just left poor Emily to help Mary. But then Emily, oops, she also got caught up in the blaze because like she's wearing the mm-hmm. same kind of dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in both of these scenarios, Emma, Mary and Emily all died weeks later after grueling agony, unfortunately. Yeah. That was the saddest part of it too. Like it's not even, it mm-hmm. was instant death. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and so many other women survived these herring ordeals, but with a lingering cost. There are a number of surgeons of the time who developed plastic surgery techniques specifically to help women who were burned and injured in dress fires. That's how prevalent it was. Jeez. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I did. Yeah. Well, moving on now to more harrowing ways women uh, disfigured themselves for fashion. Let's oh, talk about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about, you know, the good old corsets. Yeah. Know about that. You, yeah. Oh, gosh. Corsets. If you were a young upper class woman of a courting age and didn't want to be regarded as a loose woman, which is the, t- <laughs> the title of our opera, um, your corset was laced to high hell. That is the title of our opera. Yes. <laughs> yes. Courses laced to high hell. Courses, as we know, are shaping garments designed to give women impossibly thin waist. And again, mimicking the wayfish look that comes with dying of TB. Made with whalebone, and then as the century evolved steel, uh, the corset sucked in the wearer's waist to create an extreme hourglass figure. And then about halfway through the century, there was the invention of the metal eyelet. And eyelets are those little circular rings that the laces of a corset go through. And this is how the concept of tight lacing was introduced, where you could like really give her hell and pull those laces tight. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it also kind of acted like a bra and women would like pad their chest and butts to make their waist look even more proportionately tiny or try to use the corset to push fat into, quote unquote, the right places. Yeah. I mean, really, <laughs> women were treated like a bag of human jello, <laughs> <I> just- <laughs> you know, but you know what jello doesn't have? Bones, at least, and and, and organs <laughs> yeah. and lungs that need to expand and breathe. How freaking awful! Yeah, uh, women were so limited while wearing these things in how much they can move and exert themselves. You were constantly at risk of fainting due to lack of circulation and inability to breathe. Um, and also, you were probably starving yourself just to fit into the thing. Exactly. Yes. No, there's a laundry list of health issues that course has created, including altering the shape of the wearer's ribcage or warping their spine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know we'll get. Yeah. Yeah. I was say, the, Car- <laughs> the Kardashians like, you know, still do this. To this oh, yeah. yeah. They're still waist training. Yeah. Of course, it's people wear all the time. Yeah. Uh, if the wearer had a pre-existing lung condition like TB or maybe rickets or vitamin D deficiency, it only exacerbated it, too. 
Yeah. Worn over time, a corset could cause extreme muscle atrophy in the back uh, and the pictorials. It, they also created constipation and digestive issues because things aren't are either squished and not in the right place. Yeah. But overall, probably the worst effect was calling the wearer's organs to shift and move, which, yes, this can happen during instances like pregnancy, but you don't want it to be happening if it's not a natural occurrence. Yeah. And speaking of pregnancy, women still wore corsets even while they were pregnant. They had like modifications, though. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London has had some on display in the past and they had lacing on the sides so you could like adjust as a woman's midsection expanded. And I guess they were kind of more bra-ish than they were to suck in her stomach, but still, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah. If corset training wasn't satisfactory, shrinking your midsection to the ideal 16-inch size, let that sink in for a minute, well, there were other options, like swallowing a tapeworm. Uh, And, like, a lot of the history is still a little muddy on this, but there are enough horrifying accounts to suggest that this was actually something put forth by so-called dietitians and doctors of the time. And in theory, a person would swallow a pill containing a tapeworm egg, thus allowing the parasite to hatch and grow in their digestive tract. Gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, eating for two, Ailey. Yeah, it does. It does. And if that tapeworm (laughs) spawns, then maybe you're eating for four or ten. or. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And they're all inbred tapeworms, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Again, but the validity of this is kind of dubious. Even so, there was a strategy that was in place for removing the tapeworm where you would apparently insert a tube down the patient's abdomen and then you would like coax out the worm with food or milk. And you could do this from either end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the the tube and then like have the little, because apparently tapeworms are into cow's milk. (laughs) Cool. That's cool. Yeah. I hope um, this was all placebos because the thought of that makes me very ill. Yeah, hopefully doctors were just giving out overpriced placebos. Yeah. (laughs) And there is so much about this era in history and so many stories that give you a visceral reaction hearing them. But thankfully, thankfully, it eventually came to an end. And for a few reasons, at the risk of sounding overgeneralizing and reductive, society was kind of getting smarter. And with this evolution came progress to its own edification. Yeah, and we got to shout out German physician Robert Koch, who pioneered the study of germ theory, yay, and the idea that microscopic organisms, bacteria, could cause certain diseases, thus ending society's obsession with this deadly consumption chic. In 1882, he was able to isolate the bacteria that caused TB, and it's around this time that we start to see the attitudes shift amongst everybody. Public health campaigns started and they began to warn the public of the dangers of these diseases and and TB eventually came to be associated with like the poor and the masses rather than the rich. Yeah, no longer was consumption chic in fashion or deathbed beauty. In fact, we start to see hemlines rise around the turn of the 20th century as long dresses with trailing skirts were seen as conduits that swept up germs and contagions from the street and brought them into the home. And consequently, shoes became more important because now everybody can see your shoes. So they started to get more fabulous and ornate. Uh, I'd rather have fabulous shoes than awful, awful corsets. Jeez. Really? Uh, I I would rather hide my shoes. (laughs) I got bad shoe game. Oh, really? (laughs) I mean, I do too. But if I had to choose between them, I'd go with with shoes, you know? But there was a revolt against corsets. The transition was, you know, kind of slow at first with women wearing health corsets that were made with a... 
With, yeah, they were made with elastic fabric, which alleviated pressure on the ribs and, and allowed for better circulation, thankfully. Uh-huh. Eventually, the medical community started to wisen up and realize that maybe warping a woman's innards wasn't the <laughs> ideal. Thank you. In the 1890s, The Lancet, a Victorian medical journal, published two articles, one titled rather bluntly, Death from Tight Lacing. Both articles denounced the practice for many of the reasons we laid out here today. Other surgeons and medical professionals started comparing the practice to skull shaping and foot binding. Yeah. And then around 1900, you know, we developed the x-ray technology and it enables doctors to see exactly what's going on inside a lady's little tummy and spine. And needless to say, the corseted x-rays looked a little bit different than a x-ray from a woman that was not wearing a corset. They looked real bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also groups like the Rational Dress Society established in 1881 got on the protest train as well. Eventually the rebellion turned tides completely and women stopped wearing corsets altogether. And then we see the flapper look of the 1920s, which was the complete opposite, right? It's excessive and obvious makeup, short hair, short skirts, such a reaction to the stifling Victorian trends. It's always that pendulum, you know what uh-huh. I mean? You have to go you go one extreme to the other extreme. Hopefully yeah. sometime you meet somewhere in the middle. Um, but yeah, corsets and constrictive clothing were out. Women could ride bicycles now and <laughs> swim and dance the Charleston and actually move their bodies and go out into the sunshine. Can you believe it? Yeah, I'm dancing the Charleston. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because sun and fresh air were now seen as a benefit, especially in treating and preventing diseases like TB, what we now know as heliotherapy, which is using sun to, to treat this. The good old sun. Yeah, we focused a lot on women's health in this episode because, you know, quite frankly, the most harrowing trends tended to target women. Mm -hmm. But there were some myths about men's grooming and attitudes that did start to change uh, around the turn of the 20th century too. So One in particular was around facial hair. Elaborate and luxuriant mustaches, beards, and sideburns were in fashion throughout the Victorian area for a few reasons. Yeah, it was easier than keeping clean shaven if you were at war and also kept your face warm if you were serving in a colder region. This proved to be especially the case during the Crimean War of uh, 1854 to 56. Yeah, a beard was the mark of a hero. There was also the mistaken belief that beards and facial hair created a protective filter from disease in the urban pollutants, Mm -hmm. which is wild. Yeah, (laughs) Like the original face mask. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea being that the beard would guard impurities from entering through the nose or mouth. Yeah. And around 1900, a complete reversal in thought occurred. Now facial hair was regarded as a trapper and breeding ground for bacteria and disease. Remember the rise of germ theory. Yeah, medical professionals were like, cut that chin hair, <laughs> shave those faces. Um, and those working in the food industry were also taken to task for not shaving. Dr. Park, who was on the Board of Health at the time, was quoted as saying, There is a real menace to the milk if the dairyman is bearded. The beard, particularly when damp, may become an ideal germ carrier. Well, sure enough, in 1902, the dairymen of New York were banned from beards. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, in World War I, two men couldn't have beards at all because it prevented your gas mask from tightly sealing around your face. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- thanks to the uh, hipster movement, beards are back in a big way. I can only, they're back. they're back. You know, I can only imagine that when our alien over- overlords arrive, they'll, you know, put the kibosh on that. But, um... Devin has a beard, my partner, and I love it. And I personally do not want him to shave it because he just looks like looks like a completely different person. But I do have to tell him, like, straight up, 
I'm like, you have to like wash your beard. It is, it is a part of your face. It's a part of everything. So like yeah. if, if he were to sweat or something and like he'll wash maybe like his, his skin, but I'm like, I can tell like when he hasn't washed his beard, I'm like, you have to wash your beard. You know, yeah. like it's, yeah. I, I never think about that, yeah. but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love that you outed Devin mm-hmm. on this. You're like, for, he's not washing that No, beard. and for all men listening to this, men or women that have beards, please just wash him. You know, you gotta, you gotta get in there and you gotta clean it. You gotta clean it. Should we, should we sell a 30 Mormon Minutes brand beard wash? God, wouldn't that be awesome? Bed and whiskers yeah. and Bad chops. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could also sell a makeup plat, uh, palette and it's just like, it's black. No, it's, it's just like black, white, and red. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, right now we only have T-shirts in the Rooster Teeth store on roosterteeth.com slash store. But I think these are pretty good offerings. Honestly, these past couple episodes, we really, you know, we've had some really good merch ideas. What was the one we had last episode? Oh, it was the, it was a T-shirt from you, Jess. It said sicko. That's it. That was it. Yeah, Got we it. need to think of some yeah. new merch stuff. But yeah, I think <laughs> I, I really want the makeup <laughs> oh lord uh well that ends today's episode as we continue to mine the distinctly morbid victorian era for gruesome fare yep we'll be uh we'll be back next week with a new episode but for now be sure to check out our backlog if you haven't uh-huh. and uh have a great week you sick sick sickos bad bye bad bye, bad bye.